We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're broadcasting from the Silencer Central studios where they make silence simple. Visit silencercentral.com to find out if owning a silencer is legal in your state and then work with their experts to find the perfect suppressor for your needs. They handle all the paperwork and ship right to your front door. That's silencercentral.com. Probably very few of you in our audience have not seen the movie Good Morning Vietnam, the 1987 film starring Robin Williams. For most of us, it was probably our first introduction to the Armed Forces Vietnam Network. Ben Moses, who worked alongside Adrian Cronauer and co-wrote and produced the film, described it as half Adrian, half me, and half made up. A comprehensive understanding about the role of these men and women in the war effort is hard to find, at least it was until now. A new book titled Hot Mics and TV Lights, co-authored by Mark Yablanca and Rick Fredrickson, describes in detail drawn from the first-person interviews of those who were there. Long-time listeners may recognize Mark from his previous appearance on American Warrior Radio uh, several years ago to discuss his book Vietnam Bao Chi, Warriors of Word and Film about Military War Correspondence. Mark himself was a seasoned writer, reporter, and served as a public affairs officer for the California State Military Reserve. Mark, welcome back to American Warrior Radio. Ben, it's great to be back with you again. It's been a few years, but it's great to be back with you and your listeners once again. Well, you keep cranking out good books. You know, you keep doing that. I'm always happy to have you back on the show, brother. <laughs> well, I, you know, this one was, uh, they're all a labor of love, but I think this one was even more so. And I think my work with Rick Fredrickson really made it that. I think the book without him would have been a completely different book because, uh, as you know, Rick was right in the thick of it. I myself have been to Vietnam as a reporter three times, Laos and Cambodia once each after the war. But Rick was a newsman at uh, the American Forces Vietnam Network and was a crucial person in the uh, the history of, a- of AFVN and really, I feel, made the book what it is. Well, yeah, and he, it's clear from the book he brought a lot of... Uh a lot of wisdom, a lot of the historical context to the book. Now, is it, is it fair to call you co-authors, or is it Mark Yelblanca with Rick? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's Mark with Rick on the cover, but if you want to call me co-author with Rick Fredrickson, uh, I would consider it a high honor, Ben. Fair enough. Now, let's uh, inform, like I said, most people, their familiarity only comes back to the movie, and uh, you know, I can't tell you how many veterans I've had on the show. In fact, one made me really laugh. It was a film was made, and I said, well, how accurate was that? And he said, well, we were in Afghanistan, but that's 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 where he left it, right? So the, let's, let's tell people a little bit about the AFVN. It really was born in a place called the Rex Hotel, American Forces yes. Radio Saigon. They signed on in 1962, and based on your book, they were working with hand-me-down equipment and a World War II transmitter. Yes, all thanks to U.S. Navy Chief Petty Officer Bryant Arbuckle, who was tasked with putting the radio station together. He did so with used equipment and and, uh, LPs and uh, commandeered, if that's the right word, I think uh, four rooms at the Rex. The Rex is uh, right downtown Saigon in the the hub of uh, Thriving City. And um, at the time, it was an officer's quarters. And so I think getting the radio station into the Ricks 
at that time in 1962 probably was, you know, a, a tremendous feat. I, I, you know, I remember in a conversation with Rick saying that, you know, although he was not there in 1962, from what he understood, the officers there turned a lot of heads wondering, you know, in the old familiar phrase, who are those guys, mm-hmm. you know? But, um, yeah, it was 62, and Chief uh, Arbuckle did it all on his own in a matter of weeks, and he was he was uh, spinning records and doing news, etc., 18 hours a day. Luckily, after a matter of weeks, he was able to get a full staff together, and uh, the, the station, which, at, as you point out, was called the Armed Forces Radio Service, at the time eventually became the American Forces Vietnam Network. Now, what was there an official mission statement for this organization? Uh, not that I'm aware of. I would have to defer to Rick on that. I bet, you know, if we were fortunate enough to have Rick with us, he would be able to, to clarify it. You know, I mean, the the aim of, uh, if it were left to me to say what I think the aim was, it was basically to bring a little bit of home to our GIs uh, who were, even as early as 1962, when we were basically advisors, and CIA personnel, a little bit of home. Uh, and that certainly was uh, what the, the station endeavored to do throughout its history until the end of the Vietnam War. Now, t- television was added in 1966. I want to talk about that next because it's a very unique way they did that. But eventually, mm-hmm. and some of the things in the movie were accurate. I mean, the, the two guys that co-wrote it were, were there on the ground experiencing it. But, you know, the phrase from the Delta to the DMZ, at mm-hmm. one point in time between radio and TV, they had coverage of over 90% of the Americans that were in country, and that's pretty impressive given what they had to work with. Exactly, and that phrase became uh, accurate when they added the station, the television station channel 11 in way, uh, so that they could accurately claim, you know, that they were broadcasting from the Delta to the DMZ. I consider myself generally pretty educated, Mark, but uh, Project (laughs) Jenny I'd never heard of, that was yes. very, very unique. Tell us about that. Fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, what Project Jenny entailed was a, a uh, I think, about three uh, Lockheed Constellation uh, planes. If you remember, uh, I've probably got a few years on you, but I do remember the the Lockheed planes that had, and not, not one, but three tails. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, on 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 the rear and uh, the Connies, as they were called, there was, uh, and they were called Blue Eagle, Blue Eagle One, Blue Eagle Two, and the third was Blue Eagle Six. Why they jumped to six, I really can't tell. You know, perhaps that's something I can defer to uh, to Rick when I talk to him next. But they they were they were uh, three three planes. One uh, Blue Eagle One was strictly radio. Um, and it, interestingly enough, was often found in Da Nang and was used for um, what we might call black ops in a, in a, in a radio sense. I mean, their, their mission was uh, trying to, to uh, get defectors, trying to, to, to preach, you know, democracy to, to those who were sympathetic to the Viet Cong and NVA cause. Uh, they were like an extension of what was called the Chu Hoi program. Uh, that tried to win former Viet Cong cadres over to the uh, Republic of South Vietnam side. The other two had radio and television uh, capabilities, um, even to the point where they had an announcer 
uh, aboard uh, those uh, those planes. Now, mind you, in 1965, there virtually was no television in the entire country of Vietnam until the U.S. Navy came along and somehow, you know, made it possible for um, the American personnel to see TV. And I suspect those in uh, Vietnamese uh, nationals who were, uh, should I say, you know, financially stable enough to have a television set. Um, in, in Rick's words, because he wrote that chapter, all you needed to do was have rabbit ears and position it on the top of the television set to the point where you could get a fuzzy picture. Um, at one point in the history of, of Project Jenny, though, uh, two of the planes were mortared uh, when they were on the tarmac at Tonson Yacht Air Base uh, and, uh, you know, were put out of commission. Uh, one, uh, you know, one of the uh, announcers, in fact, on one of the planes was in the plane uh, and, uh, you know, when it was mortared and luckily escaped with his life. When we come back, I want to talk more about that because I just I find that fascinating. We really were talking about an airborne radio and television platform uh, very creative, and again, we're talking about the 1960s. And um, I've actually been through a, a Connie out at our local uh, museum, and it, they're not that big on the inside. So I think it's uh, kudos to those Navy folks who put that put that equipment together. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host Ben Bueller Garcia. We're talking with Mark Yablanca. He's got a great uh, new book out. It's uh, kind of along the lines of Good Morning Vietnam. It's called Hot Mics and TV Lights. It describes the interesting and brave men and women of the Armed Services Vietnam Network. Mark, we'll, we'll talk more about that when we come back. Stick around. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with Mark Yablanca. Mark is just a, a wonderful author. His latest book out is called Hot Mics and TV Lights. It describes the efforts and the men and women of um, the Air Force Armed Forces Vietnam Network. I'll get that right before the end of the show, Mark. Um, you know, okay. We're talking about Project Jenny, and one of the, the kind of, I mean, it's funny now, but it wasn't at the time. There was an entry in your book talks about how one of these planes was up in broadcasting, and, and they would broadcast, or the TV station would broadcast, you know, things like, it wasn't just propaganda. I mean, they'd be showing gun smoke and all these other mm -hmm. kind of family American shows, and, and, you know, the Vietnamese people and, and the U.S. troops both were, were watching this. But they were, shortly after the Tet Offensive, as you relate in your book, uh, one of these um, Project Jenny aircraft were up, and they're broadcasting what was supposed to be a Vietnamese language program, but they had the wrong soundtrack. And it was actually a propaganda recording meant for the Viet Cong. And the South Vietnamese thought that the plane had been hijacked and literally sent up two F-5s to shoot these guys down. And, and luckily they were able to talk their way out of it. Uh, that's that's a, kind of an engineering faux pas. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit. We started off with Good Morning Vietnam, and, and frankly, I'd never heard of, of Ben Moses, um, mm -hmm. but you talk about him in your book, and of course, everybody's heard of Adrian Conauer, but the, so basically, he pitched this this idea for a, a film uh, or a TV show or something for five years before anyone signed on, and I was shocked that one network executive actually dressed him down and said, how dare you? try and put on something humorous about Vietnam. 
Yes, and and you know I think we have to kind of place ourselves back in the time when the mucky mucks in Hollywood, you know, uh, wouldn't dare touch anything that was funny about Vietnam. And if I can just bear for a second over to the TV series MASH, you remember? I'm sure your listeners remember MASH, Robert Alda and and, and such. Uh, sure. That TV series was supposedly set in the Korean War, and the reason that that's how they got by all that sentiment at the time. But the reality was it was the Korean War, but the stories were Vietnam. Uh, you know, and what happened was that producers of MASH actually sent out feelers to Vietnam veterans asking them for their stories. They were reticent to put, you know, a TV show out there with Vietnam as the theme because, again, this prevailing thing that Vietnam wasn't funny and, you know, we lost the Vietnam War. I have my own feelings about that. That's a topic for, for another day, another interview. And so they masked the Vietnam War with the Korean War you know, as a backdrop, because that was, you know, so long ago. But they put out feelers to Vietnam veterans, and I know this because I know two people personally. One was my internist, who was a doctor in Vietnam, and another is a friend of mine who uh, was the chief Red Cross photographer and writer in Vietnam from 1968 to 1970, and also did some freelancing for Newsweek magazine. Both of them pitched stories to the producers of MASH that actually MASH producers took and turned them into um, Korean War stories. And um, it it was just the sentiment, I think, at the time, because Vietnam was so quote-unquote new, because this, again, as I mentioned, was the only war, so to speak, that uh, the United States had lost, that Hollywood didn't want to touch it. And so, as you know from the book, Ben Moses and and Adrian Cronauer, you know, realized their dream literally 20 years after they had both been in Vietnam and befriended each other and, you know, conceived of the project that became Good Morning Vietnam. A huge hit that almost wasn't made. I, I tell you, it's funny, I also learned that apparently Ben originally wanted Dustin Hoffman to play the lead mm-hmm. role, but but Robin Williams basically begged him for the job. He's like, man, Robin Williams can't act, but uh, turns out he was wrong, and I think we're all grateful for that. I did learn something yeah. as a radio professional from your book. Explain to us why Adrian Cronauer dragged out the word good morning Vietnam. There was a technical reason for that. Right, right, yeah. There was a technical reason because, as he says, as uh, he told Rick in Rick's interview with him, basically, it allowed him to flip a couple switches and perhaps even, you know, finish queuing up a record or whatever, you know, as you know, uh, you and I both know that disc jockeys did, you know, in those days. So it gave him some time uh, to uh, to do so. I think, you know, mentioning uh, uh, Robin Williams, I think it's important, you know, for us to know that, you know, what we saw on screen was not the way that Adrian Cronauer uh, basically did did his, his, his shows. I mean, if Adrian Cronauer had done one-tenth of, of mm-hmm. the humor that Robin Williams had done in the movie, albeit, you know, as funny as it was and as great as, as Robin Williams did in the movie, Adrian Cronauer probably would have been, you know, out out of a job a lot sooner than he was. Well, let's talk about, we got just about three minutes for the next break, Mark. I want to talk about another 
famous name, although he wasn't that famous at the time, who also made a rather egregious error. A young man folks might recognize named Pat Sajak. Mm-hmm. He was one of the DJs uh, there on the on the network, and um, mm-hmm. he tells a story where it, apparently the President Nixon was about to make a broadcast, so he's playing music in one ear and, and listening for the feed from the president in, in the other ear. And so, mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States, okay, flips the switch, they go through, and apparently President Nixon paused, and mm-hmm. Pat thought, well, he's done. So he switched back to radio. Well, then the right. President starts up again, and I think Pat just kind of buried that and Maybe no one was a wiser. Well, what happened was, yeah, he, uh, the president was, the president Nixon was shuffling some papers, and, you know, kind of a long pause, and um, you know, uh, so Pat figured it was uh, the end of the speech, and he flipped on a record by what I think it was the 1910 Fruit Gum Company record, whatever was popular at the time, and then in his ear, as as you suggest, as you say. Uh, you know, he heard the president continue, and the thought was, well, do I log back on, or do I flip back on, sorry, uh, to, uh, I was using, a, you know, log back on is what we do today, but uh, he flipped, should he flip back on, you know, and admit an error, or just let it go, because in reality, he was the only one in the whole country of Vietnam that knew that uh, you know president nixon's speech continued so the way that pat likes to uh, to talk about it he's you know when he when he you know remembers this he says so for anyone who was in country in vietnam and christmas at christmas of 1971 i think you have a belated merry christmas from president richard m nixon i one of the other funny stories he said apparently after the tet offensive they insisted that uh, everybody started carrying weapons, and so they take Pat out to the range, and his his weapon, his forty five, wouldn't fire because the the firing pin was broken, and you know they mm-hmm. advised him to get it fixed, and he never did that because the way he says is, you know, having me with a gun is more of a threat to my roommate than than the Viet Cong. So he just, I guess maybe he carried it around, but it wasn't wasn't functional, never had anything. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, there's your host Ben Bueller Garcia. We're speaking with Mark Yablanca uh, about his new his new book, uh, Hot Mics. And TV lights. Don't forget, you can find this podcast and over 500 others at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or on your favorite streaming platform. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're broadcasting from the Silencer Central studios where they make silence simple. Visit silencercentral.com to find out if owning a silencer is legal in your state. Then their experts can help you find the perfect suppressor for your needs. They handle all the paperwork and ship right to your front door at silencercentral.com. We're talking with Mark Yablanca. Uh, really great. One of my, you're actually one of my favorite authors, Mark. I mean, I, I love your... I love the books uh-huh. that you published so far, particularly when you're working in the uh, the Vietnam era. I will say that um, Hot Mike's is a, is a little bit of a different take than what I'm used to from you, but still very enjoyable. Just 
replete with stories of the people that were involved in the AFVN there in Vietnam. And before we took the break, you were talking about Pat Sajak and his time there as a disc jockey. Right. Yeah, there's just a, a, a side story to that that I'd love to mention. Actually, what you read in the book, in, in Pat's chapter, was a, a magazine article I wrote about uh, uh, Pat for Vietnam Magazine. And I had interviewed him previously uh, for an article on the, on the Armed Forces Radio and Television uh, Service. And about the time, we did it on the phone. And um, I was going to be, his, his people allotted me, I think, 15 minutes. And right before our, our phoner, Pat, uh, on his show Wheel of Fortune, of course, uh, had a contestant who won a lot of money. And uh, Pat was happy for him and uh, went to hug him. And the contestant turned around and sued Pat for bodily injury. Uh, I'm sure it was, (laughs) swear to God, Uh, I'm sure it was thrown out of court. But anyway, day of the phoner comes, his phone rings, it's Pat Sajak on the line. And he says, let's see, Mark, what are are we supposed to be talking about? And I said, Pat, don't worry, I'm not going to sue you. (laughs) And he busted out laughing. And what was supposed to be 15 minutes turned into at least 45 minutes interview in which these couple of articles that I that I wrote about Pat were able to you know come to fruition in magazines and become part of this book which is even more important. Mark, one of the other takeaways for me, the big takeaways from the book is, you know, folks might be inclined to think that the radio and the TV folks were, you know, in the rear with the gear, but there really wasn't much of a safe place and and there's so many stories about just how how dangerous this was. I mean, they were still in a war zone. You you mentioned the the Project Jenny aircraft were you know mortar attacked, um, and there was actually talks about one. There was a, a rocket attack on one of the radio stations, and they get, took a direct hit on the station. The DJ was on the air at the time. He got mm-hmm. wounded, so he might be the only DJ to ever receive a Purple Heart for uh, getting you know wounded while on a broadcast, but. Well, let, let me back up a little bit. There was John Bagwell. Yes. And February 12, 1973, the big famous prisoner release, the first big release that included uh, John McCain, included mm-hmm. five AFVN staff members who were captured during the, the battle for Way. And um, right. John Bagwell describes that. And, and so there were nine staff at that station. That, and right. Again, we're talking DJs, right? But they held off their attackers for what, like five days? Three yeah. were killed, one of which was executed, and five of them were, were taken POW. Uh, mm-hmm. Very powerful, powerful uh, description. I, it, it was. You know, if, if you and your listeners wouldn't mind, if I could just, you know, I'm going to have to have, do a kind of a balancing act here before between the phone and the book, but if, if I could just maybe read a little bit about what John Bagwell went through, I would, I would you know, I'll just and give your readers a, a kind of a flavor of the book. Can sure. we do that? Sure. sure, go ahead. All right, good. So John Bagwell was a DJ on loan to AFBN from the 1st Cavalry Division, along with Stephen Straub. The two were destined to be the on-air voices of AFBN's doomed radio station. Bagwell is the last living survivor of the Tet Offensive, which you referred to, at AFBN's Detachment 5, which is in a way. And then Harry Etmuller, who uh, you and I have talked about, uh, died of a heart attack uh, in March of 2020, months after granting uh, Rick uh, an interview. Anyway, regarding uh, Mr. Bagwell, in the book we write, a boy, maybe as young as 10, Bagwell guesses, suddenly popped up in the window and started shooting. 
I could hear one of the bullets go by my right ear, and a second later, another bullet went by my left ear. I realized I've got to kill this kid, Bagwell recalls. So he raised his M16 and shot the boy dead. Further down, just to continue, Bagwell ran out the front door, letting Army veteran Courtney Miles take the lead. Niles, who was staying at the AFPN dormitory, had worked for NBC International and was immediately wounded. He stumbled and then suffered a fatal gunshot wound. Bagwell escaped but was lost. The rest of the broadcasters stormed out of the building and came under fire as the enemy chased them along a fence where they became trapped. They were maybe 20 feet away, throwing grenades, firing automatic weapons, Etbuller recounted. I got shot in the leg, and Tom Young got grazed on the head. He tried to write F Vietnam on the wall, but didn't get that finished. It just goes on. I mean, I could continue, but we have to put this in the perspective of the, the AFE and studios back in Saigon were car-bombed twice. So to think of uh, them only being in the rear with the gear, somehow it doesn't apply to what uh, the staff at AFE and went through uh, then. Absolutely. And you also, in other parts of the book, you relate the story, let's see, it was Bob Wilford, who was up yes. at Pleiku, if I pronounce that correctly, and, and their yeah, studio was actually mm-hmm. assaulted. Mm-hmm. The next day, they, they're broadcasting what was was a TV station. They didn't think the, the TV feed was on, so they're just broadcasting audio. But here's these guys in their flak jackets and their helmets doing the broadcast when the TV feed comes on. And, of course, the studio was pretty much demolished, so nothing but open sky behind them. But they continued with their job and, and and got it done. And they did, yeah. They, yeah. And and uh, Bob is is uh, one of those and who was also in, involved. Uh, he was uh, sent to Han Trey Island, uh, the detachment there, along with with Rick. Uh, that concerned the censorship issue. Bob was one of the disc jockeys who, by day, was doing his job. But then, come midnight, the gears kind of changed, and then he was an announcer for. WPOT radio, which you, you <laughs> want to. <laughs> yeah, I, I got that. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, their thing was uh, playing the records uh, that had been banned uh, by the, the Mucky Mucks, uh, the top brass at AFE and Saigon, and uh, doing that and, and apparently getting away with it. Uh, you know, although that wasn't always the case when it was tried at other detachments. Well, and is that the one where the, the the colonel or whoever the commander was in charge? There was actually he appreciated that. He's like, "Hey, give yes, go take free yes. reign, buddy." Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and and then we're talking about you know playing protest songs uh, mm-hmm. off the top of my head. Folk singer Phil Oaks' uh, song "I Ain't Marching Anymore" comes to mind, or Country Joe and the Fish. Uh, I feel like I'm fixing to die rag. You know, with the lyrics for uh, you know. Uh, what are we fighting for? Don't ask me. I don't give a damn. Next stop is Vietnam, you know, and uh, all of which had been, you know, banned, uh, you know, in uh, by the top brass. Uh, I mean, it, it got, you know, it got very ri- ridiculous at a certain point. I mean, Chubby Checker's song, The Twist, was banned from AFEN because Madam knew the sister-in-law of the of the uh, the president of, of South Vietnam at the time, uh, you know President Ziem, uh, you know she didn't like the song, so you know uh, the the brass at AFEN Saigon or or you know it's you know or the basically the USG 
ban the song. So that really, that maybe is another one of those aspects of, of Good Morning Vietnam where, where censorship, or let's just say a, a tight editorial control, was definitely part of, of what they had to uh, had to deal with there at AFEN in, in Vietnam. Absolutely right. Okay. I tell you what, Mark, when we come back, I want to talk about some of the other creative uh, things I learned in the book. Uh, really, um, as a radio professional, things that makes me smile and shake my head in a good way and say, congratulations, guys, good on you. Ladies and gentlemen, there's your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia, here on American Warrior Radio. We're talking with Mark Yablanca about a great book he's written about the uh, Armed Forces Vietnam Network during that conflict there in Vietnam. Don't forget, you can find this podcast and over 500 others at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with Mark DeBlanca. Mark's got a great new book out called Hot Mics and TV Lights. It's about the AFVN in Vietnam. Most uh, most people's familiarity with that would come back to the movie Good Morning Vietnam. But I tell you, honestly, this book is just replete with stories about both the network and some of the people involved with it. Before the break, Mark, we're talking about uh, censorship a little bit. I, I just love... You've got some some uh, bailing wire and chewing gum going on at some of these stations. You got a, a broadcast platform flying up ten thousand feet in the air. But one of my favorite stories involved how they would and what was it was in the movie The Sting, where where they were putting on that that scam and they had a guy in the back reading the horse races off a teletype, and then they were broadcasting them out to the the folks in the room there as if it was taking place live. And uh, something very similar happened with one of the stations regarding, uh, you know, baseball games and and even a boxing match. Tell our listeners that story because that was pretty funny. And it was well, you know, I remember the uh, this was uh, basically one of Rick's chapters, but but um, I remember the World Series, uh, you know, that they were they were basically just sort of fibbing it through. But that's all I can say about that, unfortunately. Well, I tell you, they <clears throat> excuse me, they were the, the match, the boxing match was Sonny Liston versus Floyd Patterson. And if okay. anybody is a, is a boxing history fan, they'll know that that was a first round knockout. But these guys had some time to fill, so they got creative. They made up a fight show. Even one of their guys came in and pretended to be Muhammad Ali, and they went with that. But apparently they were so successful that they got mail or conversations from the folks in the field saying, how in the heck did you guys score a trip to Las Vegas to to see that? Creativity and, and sourcing, too, you know, just as far as the music that they played, they were, you know, sometimes they'd have to borrow records from some of the troops to do that. Some of them had relationships with stations back in the States in their previous life, and they were shipping right. music to them. And Or sometimes they just had to go out into the, the city and buy albums yes, to play. Yeah, yeah there were, some of the towns had their own record stores, and, and they would buy them. AFRTS back in the States would ship them these extremely long-playing record albums, but there was always 
a time lag in getting them from AFRTS, uh, the you know Armed Forces Radio and Television Service, then in Hollywood over to Vietnam. So the guys would, you know, as you suggest, go to record stores in some of the towns and buy them, or some of them would have records sent from home, etc., that they would then use on the air. Early on, you were talking about how this the station, at least one of them, was established in the, the Rex Hotel, which was supposed to be just for officers. And the way they got around that remind me of my, my brother served in the Office of Special Investigations. And in his line of work, they none of them wore rank because if you just happen to be a sergeant and you're, you know, investigating a colonel, that shouldn't should not be an issue. And right. they and one thing we did see in, in uh, Good Morning Vietnam was they did come up with a quote unquote a special uniform that that these DJs and the staff would wear that would uh, you know maybe get some sideways glances but allow them to walk safely down the street and would confuse maybe some of the officers there and at the wrecks and lead them to not asking too many questions. And I know that upcountry, one of the detachments, I think it was Bob Wilford's unit, wore Australian boonie hats, you know, and people would look at them sideways, like, who are those guys, you know? And, uh, yeah, sure. And then uh, I know that when AF, uh, when uh, the Armed Forces Radio Services started, they all had their, like, uh, their their shirts as well, uh, you know, the uh, polo-type shirts mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, you see a picture of in the book. And it wasn't just men. Um, one of my favorite chapters, and I turned to it right away, to be honest with it, just because of the name of the chapter. Tell us a little yeah. about, about Lori Clemens. Uh, I'm glad you brought her up. Uh, great gal. She, through, as as many of the guys that um, ended up on AFN, went through DINFOS, the Defense Information uh, School, uh, which at that time was at Fort Benjamin Harrison in Indiana. Now it still exists. It's at Fort Meade, Maryland, though. She did all that. She got her classification and got orders for Vietnam. And the CO at the time said, uh, I don't want any women here. The, the women aren't allowed here. But she persisted amidst even you know, misogyny, I mm-hmm. guess, against women, you know, went on the air. But, uh, you know, one of the funny things about her chapter that she re- uh, regaled to us was that uh, for the first week that she was there, she didn't know that she was wearing her fatigue pants backwards. OK, uh, you know, and she figured, well, yeah, pockets on the front until somebody at AFVN pointed it out. And, of course, then the whole staff, you know, broke down in laughter and and Lori joined them. She was involved in a lot of escapades, one in which she was uh, she and someone else. They had painted the inside of, uh, you know, one of one of the offices, candy apple red. And then all of a sudden commanding officer from, uh, I guess, McVie. Uh, you know, Military Assistance Command Vietnam came to do an inspection, and they were trying to steer him away from seeing the candy apple red door. Um, and then in the end, I guess he had he, he saw it anyway and laughed it off. Uh, Lori tells an interesting story about when she derosed from Vietnam. She was in Hawaii. And, you know, it was indicative of the treatment, I think, of Vietnam veterans once they got home. They were told to walk a certain path, you know, and not to deviate from it. Well, Lori looks off in the distance and she sees some plane coming in and the passengers deplaning and they're all getting those Hawaiian lays. And, and you know, and so she started to walk in that direction. The next, the next thing she knows, some big Samoan guy picked her up and tossed her on the ground, 
and to put it in her words, uh, you know, took her 30 years to go back to Hawaii, you know, after that. But um, a lot of funny escapades in, in Lori's chapter. Mark, we've, we've only got about three minutes left, and I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't touch on probably the one person who was maybe more famous than Adrian Cronauer in Vietnam. Tell us a little bit about Bobby the Weather Girl. Bobby's another great gal. Uh, she was revered uh, in, 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 at AFVN, and um, she didn't uh, go to Vietnam. She was a world traveler. She had been in Japan. She was an Army brat, which, you know, explains, I think, her world traveling. Um, uh, it took her to countries like Japan, where, interestingly enough, she did some television commercials. But she was actually in Vietnam. Uh, working for USAID, the United States, uh, you know, uh, Agency for International Development, and she's at lunch in the what was called the International House, a place, an eatery in Saigon, and the commanding officer of AFVN looks at her and says, you know, uh, you'd make a you'd make a great weather gal, and she thought, as her friends uh, also thought, that, um, uh, that it was a pickup line. Uh, but she, she, you know, but she, she was invited to, to, um, you know, to, to go for a, you know, an interview and see how she was, you know, in the studio, etc. And she said, you know what, I'm going to take him up on it. Sure enough, uh, you know, she, she got the job and she meant so much to, to the, to the GIs, uh, you know, uh, that uh, were in Vietnam. She had a classic sign-off. Um, which, you know, you, you know her picture from the book and everything, and, and uh, uh, she's a beautiful gal, and her sign-off was, uh, you, know, uh, you know, have a great night weather-wise and, of course, otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that may be part of that also got into Good Morning Vietnam. They, the, you know, basically the, the weather, it's, you know, it's either going to be hot or it's going to be hot and sticky, and that's your, that's your two options. Uh, Mark, yeah. just a minute left. I want to close with, uh, I found sort of sobering, I guess, but the last official broadcast from for AFVN, they were looking yes. for something, that, you know, they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we do this? It's basically alert. And you think about World War II where they had all those, you know, code phrases, you know, John has a, you know, long mustache or, or whatever, the chair is up against the door. And they had yes. something like that planned. And, and um, I'll just relate this if you don't mind it. Basically, sure, someone, someone thought up as, you know, we need something that every American is going to recognize instantly. So they came mm-hmm. up with the song White Christmas. Now, keep in mind, this is during the spring. But um, yes. basically, the plan was if you hear White Christmas followed by the phrase, the temperature in Saigon is 105 degrees and rising, that was right. your signal to bug out. And when people right. heard that, everybody started heading for the embassy or wherever they could go and... and um, just very, very, very sad. Mark, thank you for uh, spending your time with our listeners today. I, ben, I, it's been an honor to be with you and your listeners, and uh, I really thank you for having me on. If any of your listeners are interested in the book, uh, it's, it's basically it's available right on Amazon.com. All they have to do is, uh, you know, key in uh, hot mics and TV lights, the American Forces Vietnam Network, and the book will come up. And uh, I wish them happy reading, and uh, thank you for having me on again. Outstanding. Thank you, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, all policies and procedures are remain in place. Take care.
listening to American Warrior Radio. Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.